This episode contains discussion of some uncomfortable themes. Listener discretion is advised. I was in the bathroom and the pain just went from bad to excruciating. And I remember screaming for my husband to come and told him, you know, something's really wrong. I don't know what's going on. I was doubled over in pain. Like I couldn't even get my clothes on myself. And I told my husband, I'm like, something is really wrong. And so I had my husband call 911 and it was a, a really painful ride to the hospital, to the ER. And they put the fetal monitor on to try to find my daughter's heartbeat. And, you know, at that point, um, I kind of knew but I was in so much pain and, and overwhelmed with everything that it, it, it didn't quite feel real. And I remember the doctor coming over and, and telling me that they, they couldn't find her heartbeat and that they had to you know, try to get the, the baby out as soon as possible because I, I wasn't doing well. Welcome to Screwed Up Moments, the podcast where it's okay to fail, and it's okay to try again. I'm your host, Danny. On the 26th of February, 2019, the Natural Parent magazine published an article showcasing the winners of the Birth Photography of the Year competition. In first place was a photo by Belle Verdiglion Photography titled Our Rainbow Baby is Finally Here, a black and white still that features the mother holding her newborn close to her chest while bearing an expression that I can only describe as unbridled and exuberant joy a sentiment that was echoed by the article writer Hannah Schenker, who opened her piece with a simple question, quote, is there anything more beautiful or more powerful than a woman giving birth? These were powerful and beautiful moments indeed, moments that captured the mothers and their families at arguably their most vulnerable, intimate, and joyous. They range in categories such as labor, delivery, or postpartum, with each shot adding a vibrant, singular piece to the collective human experience we understand as childbirth. And yet, for all the incredible moments captured throughout the competition, there is perhaps one childbirth experience that remains elusive and invisible, one that is heartbreaking instead of joyous, devastating instead of beautiful, and invalidating instead of powerful. In this episode of the Screwed Up Moments podcast, we are privileged to be able to share this other side of childbirth through the story of Kim Whitmore, who tells us her experience with stillbirth. Hello, my name is Kim Whitmore, and this is my Screwed Up Moment. I want to talk first about your background. So I understand now that you're an assistant professor at nursing. I was wondering how you got interested in this role and how you came about to it in the first place. Sure. So uh, I worked as a home care nurse for several years in the Milwaukee community and continued to get frustrated with the little amount of 
ability I had as a nurse to help the families that I served. And so I um, started to get more interested in the health system and how policies and programs were developed to help support families, especially in the community. And that motivated me to go on to grad school. And I went to get my PhD to learn how to do good research so that I could um, help better understand the needs of families. Hopefully, the goal of my research is to help inform the development of a better healthcare delivery system and programs that support families so that they can manage the care of their children at home and the context of their complex life as a family. Yeah, wonderful. So um, I want to know a little bit more about your family. As I understand, you have a husband, Corey, and then you have two kids, Quinton and Christian. Yes. Could you tell me uh, how you met Corey and how long have you guys been together? Sure. Uh, I met my husband, Corey, when I was a freshman at Marquette University. We met playing basketball, actually. We were uh, ran into each other in the gym and uh, just uh, sort of started our, our relationship a little bit. And we started dating shortly after we met. And that was in 2000. So it's been um, wow. almost 20 years that we've been together, <laughs> which makes me feel really old. <laughs> um, That's incredible. Though. So I've, I've, yeah, I've officially been uh, spent more of my life with him than without, which is kind of cool. Um, but yeah, we, we've had quite an incredible you know road, uh, you know, meeting as an undergrad and then going through grad school and you know getting married, having kids, and all the experiences we've had that we've definitely changed as people but fortunately we've I think as we've grown we've grown together and grown closer versus I know a lot of people who are together that long often as they grow and yeah. change they sometimes grow apart and uh, we are I'm fortunate that our relationship has continued to strengthen with every challenge we've had along the way. And my husband, Corey, he is uh, entrepreneurial and a music man. Um, he always says his three things that he loves are music, uh, basketball, mm. and kids. And he finds ways to sort of integrate all three of those in, into his life. And always are surrounded by kids and music and is just a really great guy and has still plays basketball. Um, that's sort of how he keeps balance, I think. And we have two amazing boys who are living mm -hmm. with us that we're very blessed with. We have our son, Quentin, who just turned 11, and he is an incredible kid. He's in fifth grade. He's wicked smart. He loves to play the viola. He loves making origami. He uh, goes to lots of different engineering camps and conventions and is just really an active, uh, self-directed kid who's going to do incredible things someday and I'm super proud of him. And then my my little guy, Christian, he is six and he is my little sweetie pie, uh, my little mama's boy. Uh, <laughs> he is also getting to be wicked smart as he's growing and he's constantly trying to outdo his big brother and he loves basketball and art and writing and is just uh, the sweetest kid you'll ever meet and um, he's also the most giant six-year-old you'll ever meet but my <laughs> husband and I are are over six feet tall so we're, we're we're tall people and we have tall children but my youngest is gonna quickly outgrow his big brother because he's like a head taller than everybody <laughs> in his class so <laughs> he's a big boy. So that's Kim and her family 
made up of herself, her husband Corey, and their two boys, Quinton and Christian. On the surface, everything seemed to be fine. It was by and large just another normal American household. Mom and dad were working and building their careers to support the family, and the kids were, you know, just being kids. However, underneath the surface, things weren't all that well. And it all began with a visit to the doctor. In January of 2018, I found out that I have a very rare, but fortunately small and benign brain tumor. And it's uh, called a trigeminal schwannoma. And it's located in sort of the opening of my skull. So it's not technically on my brain, but uh, very close to it in a spot called Meckel's Cave that has a lot of really important things coming in and out um, into my brain. And so it's a small tumor, but in a really tight space. And so that causes uh, quite a bit of problems. And so I, I started to have symptoms um, that fall starting in, I think, August is when I started to notice a little bit of um, numbness in my face on my left side. And it just continued to persist and grow worse and um, eventually led me to seek care and get a consult with a neurologist and have an MRI. And I got the results and that sort of shook our world a little bit. Um, again, it is a benign tumor, but because of the location, the hope is that they'll be able to use surgery to help kill it and stop it from growing, but that's not 100% effective all the time. When we got that diagnosis, of course, whenever you have sort of a diagnosis that's scary like that, it gives you a, a reason to pause and, and think about life and what you want to do and sort of preparing for the worst. We, we took that year and especially that summer to really think about how we wanted to live our life and realizing the fragility of life and not knowing you know, what tomorrow will bring. And so we spent a lot of good quality time with our family and uh, went to Disney for the first time and just really refocused on what mattered in life a little bit more. And as a part of that, we were thinking about, you know, do we want to have uh, try for another child? You know, we had two boys, but we thought if, you know, if I do end up having to have any sort of radiation or surgery, uh, it could potentially impact my ability to have children or, you know, could impact my survival as well. So we made a decision to try again. And uh, we're very fortunate to get pregnant pretty quickly in that uh, next summer. And um, despite the fact that I had this brain tumor, um, still had a, a really relatively normal pregnancy, very healthy. Um, they were more worried about uh, the baby impacting the growth rate of my tumor than the tumor impacting the baby. So that was that was good. And so we we're kind of monitoring my neurological status closely. But other than that, like, um, you know, my blood pressure was good. I, was, you know, didn't gain a whole lot of weight, was doing really well. Unfortunately, we were able to have a, a baby girl. So we were excited about that to have our daughter finally come into our lives and join our family and make it complete. In order to avoid the potential complications of radiation treatment during pregnancy, Kim decided to try for another child, her quote-unquote bucket list baby, while she was still relatively healthy and before she went through surgery to treat her benign brain tumor. Despite the many risks and challenges, it was for the most part pretty uneventful. She took care of herself, didn't smoke, didn't drink, maintained a healthy blood pressure, and was set to deliver sometime during the first quarter of 2019. 
beginning of 2019, getting really geared up to expand our family. So my husband and I purchased new vehicles to have room. So I finally broke down and got the minivan, which I dreaded. (laughs) Um, But you know, it was worth it for my baby girl. Um, And then we were looking to find a new home that had more space. And so we found a incredible new home that we were able to move into in February. And we're just getting really excited to have our daughter. So on the weekend of February 23rd, my best friend from Milwaukee area threw me a baby sprinkle. So like a baby shower, but for someone who's already had a a baby, but because this is my first girl and it'd been a while since I had a baby, (laughs) I sort of needed new stuff. So we had a, a baby sprinkle, which was great. And uh, that same day, we decided we were going to take a family maternity pictures so that we had some photos with me pregnant and the boys. And so that morning, we had our maternity pictures and our baby sprinkle that afternoon. And then on the next day, on Sunday, we actually got the keys to our new home and started to slowly move into our new place. And then on Monday, February 25th, um, that morning... I went into my regular scheduled checkup at the maternal fetal medicine clinic. I had a non-stress test and an ultrasound, which uh, both were completely normal. Everything was looking great. And it was actually really amazing because it was the first time I'd had a non-stress test. And so I got to sit and listen to my baby's heartbeat. And so I had my appointment that morning and then I went to, to work at UW. And that afternoon I taught my health policy class to graduate students in the nursing program. And of course, after teaching a three-hour class, I was, you know, eight months pregnant, so a little <laughs> tired from yeah. talking because you don't have a whole lot of lung capacity when you're yeah. eight months pregnant. Um, and so, I, you know, came home and I remember that day sort of taking a little nap on the couch as I waited for my husband to come home with the boys. And then we took a, I think we took two or three loads of stuff over to our new home. Again, I, I was eight months pregnant, so I didn't do any lifting or anything. I sort of was just the driver and supervised mm. my kids. And I remember sitting in the kitchen of our new home, watching my children take all the stuff for our baby girl into her new room at our house and just being so excited that, you know, we're, we got this new house we're we're, we're ready for her finally. And, you know, it just was starting to feel really real. But then, seemingly out of nowhere, the unthinkable happened. So we had, um, you know, had dinner that night. I, I don't remember what we had, but, you know, as usual, I would read stories. And then I would usually sit in the rocking chair and kind of wait for the boys to fall asleep before I left the room, especially for my six-year-old, who was five at the time. Um, he didn't like to lay alone at night. So I would lay in the rocking chair next to his bed until they fell asleep and, I remember laying there and all of a sudden starting to have some pain in my stomach. And at first I thought, oh, this feels like, you know, when you have a really bad stomach ache from eating something bad. So my first instinct was to go to the bathroom and see if, you know, maybe going to the bathroom would help relieve this pain. in the bathroom and the pain just went from bad to excruciating and I remember screaming for my husband to come and told him you know something's really wrong I don't know what's going on I think I need to go in to be checked out and I I didn't know where to go Um, so I called the nurse nurse line and I was doubled over in pain like I couldn't even get my clothes on myself and I told my husband I'm like something is really wrong and so I had my husband call 911 and within just a few minutes um, ambulance was there and I remember 
being in the ambulance and you know I'm a nurse, I kind of try to pay attention to all the stuff that's going on. I just remember my blood pressure was something like 54 over 32, which is not good. <laughs> like I was already bleeding out and going into shock and um, it was a, a really painful ride to the hospital, to the ER, and um, a lot of what happened from that moment on was a little bit of a blur. I do remember the first thing they did when I got to the to the emergency room was they put the fetal monitor on to try to find my daughter's heartbeat. And I remember the person who was doing that first, you know, searching and kind of moving all around, you know, kind of in a, in a very frantic way. And, um, you know, I, I, I was concerned and she brought somebody else in to try and they also could not find a heartbeat. And then they finally brought a doctor in and did a, a full ultrasound. And, you know, at that point, um, I kind of knew, but I was in so much pain and, and overwhelmed with everything that it, it, it didn't quite feel real. And I remember the doctor coming over and, and telling me that they, they couldn't find her heartbeat and that they had to you know try to get the, the baby out as soon as possible because I, I, I wasn't doing well. Looking back on that moment, um, it was very strange and very surreal because though the doctor came over and told me, you know, your baby doesn't have a heartbeat, we can't find her heartbeat. I know as a nurse and just as a human being that when your baby doesn't have a heartbeat, they're not alive anymore. But the doctor never said, I'm sorry, your baby died or created a sort of space for that moment. And it sort of went from your baby has no heartbeat to, you know, you're bleeding to death and we need to you know, help you. And it was so chaotic that by the time I woke up uh, the next morning, the nurse came in and asked, you know, she, she came in and she said, you know, how are you feeling? I'm like, I'm okay. And she said, would you like to see your baby? And I'm like, yes. And, and I thought like, oh my God, they saved her. Um, and it, it wasn't until I held my daughter's, you know, lifeless body in my arms that I really hit and I really like became real that she had died. About 15 or so years ago, my grandmother from my paternal side passed away from lung cancer. I still remember those visits to the hospital, the stale air, the hushed voices, the misplaced hope the long tubes and beeping noises extending out of her like some misplaced organ. She was a sweet and portly lady, the sort of old-fashioned Peranakan matriarchal figure equipped with the best home-cooked dishes and cheek rubs on the planet. Seeing her in that hospital bed, I thought about how cruel and unfair life sometimes could be. She was always kind and loving, always sacrificing for her family. And the funny thing was, I don't think she ever smoked a day in her life. And yet there she was, spending her final days hooked up to a breathing machine, unable to muster up the strength to even say goodbye. Kim's story reminds me of my grandmother, if only for the idea that life sometimes deals the harshest cards to the least deserving of people. No one could have seen it coming before that fateful February night. Not Kim, not her family, not even the doctors or nurses. There were no warning signs, no clues or red flags to look for, and certainly no bad habits either. 
just happened. And in that moment, all the preparations, all the hope, the new house, the new cars, everything that they had planned and worked for for the past eight months were dashed, just like that, in one fateful evening after putting the kids to bed. In terms of specifics, what actually happened was something called a total acute placental abruption, which is when the placenta is completely separated from the uterine wall. To give just a brief biology refresher, the placenta is sort of an in-between organ that allows the growing fetus to receive nutrients, blood, oxygen, or to remove waste. Therefore, detaching the placenta is akin to removing the baby's lifeline. And Kim later learned from a doctor that a baby would have passed within 5-10 to 10 minutes of it happening. What follows would put Kim's own life at risk as her body tries desperately to respond to the trauma of the placental abruption, it would send all the available clotting factors to try and repair the damage, leading to blood loss of nearly 5 liters and requiring 15 units of transfusion just to keep her alive. It was definitely something that was traumatic in the fact that, you know, I not only did my daughter die, but I, I came very close to dying. And for my husband and my kids, um, you know, they were there in the ER. My husband, you know, grabbed the kids in their PJs and threw them in the car and followed the ambulance to the hospital. And they were present and watched me, you know, in excruciating pain and all the blood that was coming out of me. And um, I think was really a double trauma for them as they, you know, lost Alana, our daughter, and also, you know, nearly lost their mom. And so that's also something that I think has really impacted my husband and my kids too. In terms of what caused the placental abruption, well, no one really knows. I tried to Google for an explanation, but most of the results that came up merely said that the cause is often unknown, but could include trauma or injury to the abdomen, none of which had happened to Kim that day. Remember that Kim had a checkup that morning itself, and everything seemed fine. It just happened so suddenly and so out of left field that, frankly, it's hard to make sense of it all. And those next couple weeks were really, really, really hard. You know, we were, had to make, continue to make lots of decisions that no parent ever wants to make. You know, plan, planning a funeral, what songs do you play, what readings do you do. Um, we, since we had just had our baby shower the weekend before, there was a lot of people who couldn't make it who were sending us packages. So for a good two weeks after she died, I was still getting packages from Amazon with baby shower gifts for our daughter, which was really just awful, you know? So, um, you know, it's just, that's when it really sunk in, like she's not here. And, um, you know, that whole experience is so surreal. Did this really happen? <laughs> you know? Um, but unfortunately it did. For Kim, the senselessness of the situation manifested itself into a sort of lived duality. As she writes in a blog post, quote, Instead of sending happy baby announcements to friends and family, I was receiving sympathy cards. Instead of singing my baby to sleep with lullabies, I was crying myself to sleep from the grief of losing my daughter. Instead of laying my baby in her crib at night, I was preparing to lay her in a coffin for eternity. My bucket list baby is now my angel baby, end quote. Just such a, a strange, empty feeling to be leaving a maternity ward without a baby, you know? And um, that's when it, I think, really, really started to sink in. Like, here we are, you know, leaving the hospital in a moment 
that we should be, you know, celebrating and I should be in that wheelchair holding my baby girl, excited to strap her into her car seat. And it was such a, a an empty feeling leaving and coming home with empty arms. Um, and then, and then because of the timing of our, our new home, you know, my husband actually had to help orchestrate our move while I was in the hospital. So I literally came home to a new house. And so I, it felt like a different world. Like I felt like this isn't reality that, you know, I don't recognize where I am. My life has been turned upside down. And here I was in this nice, incredible, beautiful home that we only got because of our daughter and there's an empty room with all her stuff in it. And so it was just such a strange feeling to be in this environment even. Moreover, she also began to experience a constant state of opposing emotions. As she writes further down in her blog post, quote, I am experiencing profound joy and happiness while also experiencing profound grief and sadness. I feel blessed and broken. I am grateful to be alive, though at first I wish I would have died with my baby, and I am thankful for the two amazing children I have on earth. But everything seems to remind me of my baby girl and the memories that we will never be able to create together as a family. Seeing butterflies, roses, or anything purple usually brings a smile to my face. However, there are so many random triggers that cause paralyzing grief and sadness. The sound of a baby cooing or crying, a mom pushing a stroller in a park, a pregnant woman adding items to her baby registry at Target, a coupon for baby formula, a TV ad for diapers, a little girl with curly brown hair, a glimpse of my C-section scar in a mirror after a shower, and the list goes on and on. For many weeks after that, um, it was a very strange feeling of you know, being grateful that I was alive, but in a, in a weird, strange way, really wishing that I had died with my daughter um, and not understanding why I was still here. Um, it seemed almost like torture <laughs> to still be alive. Um, and I wouldn't call them nightmares because though it sounds scary, they weren't really scary. They were almost peaceful. But I had recurring dreams for several weeks um, after she died of me watching my own funeral and I was laying in a casket holding my baby girl in my arms and it was it was like a very peaceful feeling and so I think that was like where my psyche was like just really wanting to be with her and and present with her. And so how do you move on after something like this happens when your very own existence reminds you of your most painful trauma? Well to put it frankly you kind of just do. There's no 12-step formula no guaranteed guide, and no pathway to success. It's just taking life one day at a time, or one moment at a time even, cherishing all that you have, and remembering all that you have lost. Ultimately, once something like this happens, there is no going back to normal, at least not in the sense that you once understood normal to be. For Kim, the work to be done was simply in trying to adjust to a new life. That hole in your heart will never go away. There's nothing that can fill it. Like you are forever broken. Um, and so what you have to learn to do is to live with that duality of emotions, to know that you can be happy. Like, you know, at Christmas time, watching my children open their presents and the joy and excitement in, in my boy's eyes is wonderful. But at the same time, 
I'm also terribly sad that my daughter isn't there doing the same thing, you know? And so there's, in everything we do, there's this, this emptiness, you know, every moment of joy and happiness, there's always that, that simultaneous thought of, but if she were here, it would be better. Grateful that I have my two boys that I love and I'm so thankful to be their mother, but so wishing I had my baby girl here. You know, grateful to be alive, but at the same time wishing I was holding her in heaven. Um, you know, being grateful for this incredible new home that I get to live in that truly is like the closest thing to my dream home I'm probably going to get unless I win the lottery. Um, <laughs> but it will forever feel empty because her room will, even though she never went into a room as a living child, it will forever be her room. You know, there's just so many of those constant reminders and, and um, you know, triggers and, and really secondary losses, which is a term that uh, you hear a lot in any sort of grief or loss is, you know, there's things that, that come up that um, make it more difficult that it will happen for, you know, a lifetime, you know, things like, the loss of innocence, like, you know, you, you sort of go into a pregnancy naively thinking like, oh, everything's going to be great. And especially when you get to eight months along, it's like, you know, you're so ready for that baby to come out and you, you can't imagine anything bad ever happening. And you, you, you shouldn't, you know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't worry and stress about that. But now that I've had that happen, like every, every person I know who's pregnant, all I can think about is, oh gosh, please let that baby be okay, <laughs> you know? And so you lose that sense of innocence um, and view of the world. And, you know, you think like, you know, bad things shouldn't happen to good people. And you think there, there's gotta be a reason for everything. And I just, you know, you can't find, quite find a reason for something like this happening. And so I will forever miss every aspect of, of her life. You know, the things that I grieve are not just her death, but I grieve every milestone that we miss with her, every experience that we would have had with her. And in a strange way, I'm almost jealous of families who've um, had babies who've died after even a few days of life or, you know, have older children who've died because it's like, well, wow, you got you got to see their eyes, you got to hear their cry, you got a video of them, you know, moving, you you got to celebrate a first birthday, like, wow, what a gift. And, and I feel like I was just robbed of all those experiences. It's really about, you know, finding a new normal, you know, um, I'm a very different person now after losing my daughter. And I think one of the things that I'm trying to do is use this period of transformation to you know, come out better, um, which some days is, is motivating and other days it still is, it's hard. And there's, you know, I still have, I still have bad days and bad moments where it just sucks. But then there's moments where I can, you know, really channel my grief and in, into helping others and to be grateful for the gift she's given me of realizing the fragility of life at even even a greater extent um, than I had before and making sure I'm treasuring the time I have with my living children and just um, also being sensitive to, to others, you know, recognizing that this is so common and and loss and trauma and grief impact so many people. And I'd never experienced it to this level before to really understand how it how, how it really challenges you and 
it's not just uh, something that, you know, you can take your three bereavement days and be fine. And I think that's a, a thing that a lot of our society has this notion of that, oh, you know, you, you lose somebody, um, you, know, you, you take your couple days off and, you know, the world moves on. And especially when you lose a child, like you never move on. <laughs> you never get over that. Um, it's something that you carry with you every moment of every day. You know, you, you heal and you find ways to move through and continue to live and have joy, but it is always there. And so there's, you know, there's this stigma around grief um, that you should just get over. And if you're not, it's, it's not okay, but it's learning to live with that grief and, um, you know, almost appreciate it that that grief is there because you had such an incredible love for that person. And um, if you didn't, you wouldn't be, you know, sad as much as you are, um, but also still recognizing that you also need to make sure you're healing and being healthy and aren't being pulled into deep depression and, um, you know, are able to continue to move through that. Um, and I think that period of transformation is really scary. Like I actually described it to a few folks as really feeling like I was in a phase where, um, you know, you're like a caterpillar pillar you're you're in a cocoon and when you're in that cocoon it's dark and it's you're alone and it's really scary and you're not sure what's going to happen like you don't know what your life is going to look like after you get out of that and so you you hope that you transform into a beautiful butterfly and life is great and more beautiful and you can appreciate it more but um, that's not always the case and so that that period of transformation is is a little scary um there's been many moments where you know, my husband and I look at each other like, oh my gosh, like how are we ever going to get through this with everything going on? And I have continued physical healing myself as well from everything that happened to me and just the ongoing grief and the impact it has had on our whole family. And, and what I've come to kind of appreciate is that when, when you feel like your life is you know falling apart, um, you really get to choose how to put the pieces back together. And that's what we're really trying to be really thoughtful and mindful of as we as a family grow and heal and move forward, that we are really intentional about how we choose to use our time and our words and um, making sure that we you know, don't have any regrets as we move forward. And so with that brings the end to this episode of the Screwed Up Moments podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in and much, much thanks to Kim Whitmore for having the courage to be vulnerable and share her story. Since that incident, Kim has started the Alana Rose Foundation in honor of her daughter, whose mission is to raise awareness and provide support to families that have experienced pregnancy and infant loss. If you would like to learn more about the foundation or Kim's story, I will be leaving links in the description of this episode. With that being said, the Screwed Up Moments podcast is brought to you by the Singaporean social enterprise Happiness Initiative, an organization that advocates for happiness and well-being through their message that happiness is a choice. Production and editing was done by me, Danny Cordy, on behalf of Fable Productions. Episode music was sourced from Blue Dot Sessions, and the theme song was composed by Rico Lowe. If you enjoyed listening to the Screwed Up Moments podcast, you can help out the show by sharing it amongst your friends or by subscribing and leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Otherwise, if you have any questions, suggestions, feedback, or if you have your own Screwed Up Moments story to share, you can drop us a message through the email dkoordi at fableproductions.com or through the various social media links in the description. Once again, this has been your host Danny for the Screwed Up Moments podcast, reminding you, 
that it is okay to fail, and it is okay to try again. Thank you for listening.